Hi, and welcome to EcoGal, The Curious Consumer. I'm Ashley. Today in the EcoGal studio with me is Belgian-born Pascal Baudard, who describes himself as a culinary alchemist and a wild food artist. So welcome, Pascal. Bonjour. Bonjour. And what do you mean exactly by that? So basically, uh, I my passion in life is to connect with nature and do an exploration of flavors. I'm totally fascinated uh, with the idea of how can we how can we create how can we explore the the, the culinary aspect of an environment uh, and you know with the possibility also to kind of create a regional cuisine that will be in some way beneficial to the environment. So my relationship with nature is to learn about wild food, mushrooms, plants, etc. And and I'm calling myself also a culinary alchemist because I use a lot of traditional uh, food preservation method in my technique, like fermentation, hmm. making beer, wild beers and wines and lacto-fermentation of a lot of wild food, which when I started doing that like five or six years ago was uh, more than that. 12 years ago, sorry, was already pretty new because nobody was really using those techniques with wild food. Hmm. Um, but in the process of doing all that, uh, I really started to establish a relationship with nature and looking at environmental issues um, and how can I actually interact as a forager or wild crafter with nature in such a way that it is actually beneficial to the environment instead of, you know, just taking. So I tend to put more emphasis on using uh, non-native and invasive plants. And I would say, you know, when I was working in Los Angeles, you know, I spent most of my time doing all this stuff in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would say that more than 95% of what I was collecting and creating was, was actually non-native and invasive plant. Interesting. And there's a good reason for that, uh, you know, it's, if you take a look at Los Angeles, for example, during springtime, you, you know, you look at all the hills that surround Los Angeles and are absolutely completely yellow during springtime. And people find that pretty, but they have no mm-hmm. idea. It's actually, you know, the reason they're yellow is because all the hills are covered with mustard. And we probably have like 10 different types of mustard in Los Angeles. And I would say out of those 10, uh, half of them are non, I mean, they're all non-native pretty much. There's only one that's native, but half of them actually crops in different countries. And this is kind of like typical of people around Los Angeles. It's, you know, they they look at it as something evil, invasive, non-native, and they're not really looking at the possibilities that are there. Uh, there's only two solutions right now when you deal when they deal with that environment. They go mm-hmm. like, well, they're either going to spray chemicals, Roundup, for example. I, I think, no, they can't use Roundup, but they use another chemical. I forgot what the name is. Uh, or they, are, they do habitat restoration. That means they show up mm-hmm. and they just take all those plants and throw them away. And it dawned on me uh, literally like six or seven years ago. It was like an epiphany. I suddenly realized that here we are living in a city where you have people we cannot even afford to buy organic food or even mm. food sometimes, you know. And we are surrounded by food. 
I mean, there's food everywhere in Los Angeles. Wild food everywhere. Yeah. Most of it in, invasive and non-native. And there's only negative solution. You basically spray chemical or you throw away the resource, but yet those are crops. And I think it's fascinating that the biggest food waste, people talk to always about food waste, you know, how we have, you know, tried to reuse the food and use, you know, all of the food, but nobody is looking at, you know, the fact that we're not using all those invasive and non-native plants as really a food waste. It is the biggest food waste. You're talking thousands and thousands of acres of plants that are crops in different country, but yet nobody is using it. So the right. biggest food waste, in my opinion, the biggest food waste in Los Angeles is actually not using the, the wild food that exists, uh, completely edible plants that are crops in different countries. So what would be an example, let's say, of using that mustard? Well, for example, we have black mustard. Mm. Black, mustard black mustard is still a crop in some part of France and North Africa. Uh, and originally, it is the one that was used to make the original Dijon mustard. So you can totally collect the seeds. I do that all the time. I collect seeds every every year, mm-hmm. and then I create my own Dijon mustard with it. So if you think that way, you can say, "Oh, that's interesting." You can actually create a gourmet product. You could, you know, if I was, there's somebody from the city that actually came to one of my classes, and she was completely blown away, going like, "Oh my God, we have all this food that's around us, and I had no idea." You know, and we have all this program to get rid of the invasive plant, but we never look at the possibility of using this as a resource. We right. just see it as something that's completely negative. And she was moving, she said, well, you know, there could be a city program, and that was before the pandemic, there could be a city program whereby, you know, some people get paid to grab this food. This food can then be prepared for people who cannot afford it, or you can even create luxury products like a digital master that is made especially, you know, to deal with the environment and, you know, and salt. And I bet you, I mean, you have environmentalists who actually pay money to buy that Dijon mustard, you know, because it's actually helping the environment. Mm. And I think after that epiphany, you know, five or six years ago, I really started to look at my own interaction in terms of like how could one create a cuisine that is actually beneficial to the environment? And I really started to look also at this issue of turning all those quote-unquote weeds and unwanted plants into gourmet food. So that's kind of been a little bit my crusade. You know? Yeah, it's it's yeah. I was just going to say it's just very interesting how we have put the word weed on a lot of, on so many edible plants. I mean, we've done that with dandelions, right? Yeah, totally. And then we start spraying. I mean, all you see, all the I remember all the commercial with Roundup, mm. you know, were basically showing the the spraying of the dandelion in your lawn, and you go, the lawn is absolutely worthless. You know, the dandelion is a powerhouse in terms of nutrition, mm. but yet this is what they were advertising. You know, right, right. And who goes on your lawn but children and animals, yeah. right? And how good yeah. is that for them to be? interacting with that very and, kind of dangerous chemical. And why do we need a loan in the first place? This is such yeah. a, you know, such a waste of resource too. You mm. know, speaking of wasting resource, you know, having a loan that does nothing, you could actually imagine having every house using the same water to create a little garden. Right. Do you know what I mean? 
So yeah, so it's it's been a bit my crusade is to to really take a look at those those plants that are mostly those plants that are unwanted. Uh, mm -hmm. And I still use native plants, some native plants, but I make a point to plant them, for example. Hmm. So I used to have my own little garden in a forest where I used to plant my native plant and I created like a, you know, basically my native plant garden in, in on a private property in the forest. Uh, and I was using those plants. You know, we're talking mugwort and black sage and California sagebrush, all those plants that I used to use um, but yeah, it's fascinating how how those resources are just not used. And if you take a look at my book, I've written four books now, and most of my book actually about traditional food preservation technique applied to wild food. So I have a book about brewing and making beer, mead, and all this stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, then I have another book about lactofermentation. And the new book is all about making vinegar from scratch. So, so you, so you've. What I'm hearing is that you're kind of discovering this for yourself, and then educating other people through writing these books and doing. I I think you do workshops, as you said. Yes, yes, I still do workshops. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I've been I've been living like a semi-nomadic lifestyle now because I have an RV. Mm -hmm. And when the pandemic started, I just took off. I just started to travel a little bit uh, to to do some research. I've also studied pottery. I do I do a lot of pottery right now using wild clay that I collect too. So I'm I'm really starting to think more like an artist a little bit. Like my my lifestyle is becoming. I'm trying to make my to turn my lifestyle into an art form. Mm. It's like how can I interact with na with nature in a positive way? Yeah. Uh, but also using the resource, including, you know, making the pots and instead of having to import stuff from China or different countries, why don't, why can I not use the resource that the earth is actually giving me and do it in such a way that I'm, my footprint is like very, very, very tiny, you know? Yeah. Sounds like you're looking at these different resources in a way that provides you an opportunity to create something, right? I yeah. mean, these are all raw materials that you're using as an artist to make something, yeah. whether it's yeah, food yeah. or wild, your wildcrafted ceramics. Yeah. And I use, if you take a look at the wildcrafted ceramic, I also use like in it, I, I kind of created a little style and I use recycled branches and pine sap and all kinds of different stuff, uh, including, uh, you know, I color the clay using rust, which is chemically is called iron oxide. It's rust is actually a, chemical compound and I use rust from all cans I collect in the desert to color the clay and then I also collect old wires uh, to create my forms like the the handle for the teapot is made of old wires that I find in the desert so I'm recycling trash and put it well you're actually reusing it right yeah yeah yep yeah. so basically yeah yeah, well, so it, it's fascinating so it's, it's really a journey and I'm still working on that journey a little bit you know uh balancing you know really looking at my life and how can i balance the environment and my own life and yeah and so did this i know that you're very creative and that you've always kind of in like you've i've known you for over 22 years so i know i've watched you recreate or reinvent again and again and again um i'm just curious as to 
were you thinking about sustainability or was it just kind of, was this organically just? It, uh, it came out, it, it came out out of the, of doing it in the, in the beginning when I started to do wild food, uh, mm-hmm. which was how many years ago, I forgot, <laughs> I even forget when I started. I mean, I really studied in Belgium. My grandma used to to show me some of the wild plants, you know, because in in the old days in Belgium, mm-hmm. collecting wild food was something completely natural. There was no, you know, right. something that people would do. You know, it was part of the addition. You had a garden, but you know, you when you were walking in nature, taking a hike, you will pick up the dandelion, hazelnut, walnuts, whatever was growing, completely, absolutely normal. Yeah. It's, it's, Completely weird that people don't even know, have that knowledge anymore, you know. Yeah, that's true. We've really lost it's, touch with that. Yeah, totally. Um, but it, it came to me when I was doing, when I was in Los Angeles and doing a lot of research on wild food and using a lot of wild food, and I started to like look at the damage that was created over the years because I lost a lot of ground by uh, the action in the environment. Uh, by the what? Expand- the action of humans, people, Mm. in the environment. Uh, One of the main ones is actually city expansion. And city expansion doesn't always show up by by, uh, building houses. But for example, as the city grows a little bit, you also have people who are pushed away. So there's, you know, a good example. There's a forest that was absolutely pristine. And now I would say there's uh, probably like 200 homeless people living in it. Which is fine, meaning that it's it's a phenomena that occur from a city expansion and also the you know the economy you know so the economy environment actually goes together. But one of the issue too is once you start having you know homelessness showing up in the forest, there's also some people with mental issues. And I'm not judging, but I'm just saying, you know, the environment becomes really trash to some degree. You know, it's nearly impossible to go back at one point. So I probably lost like five miles. More than that, probably 10 miles of environment that was pristine just because of also the, the spraying of Roundup. Mm. You know, I, I didn't know, no idea until I started seeing all those people spraying stuff as a war against an invasive and non-native plant, by the way. So they're spraying Roundup to get rid of those non-native plants, uh, which is the food that I'm using. So I, there's a bunch of factors that basically just showed up and you know, I start looking at this issue going like, this is crazy. We're just wasting all this resource. We try to save in the environment. We try to save the environment, but in the process, we're really destroying it. Mm. You know, every time, twice, twice I've seen action of, you know, and I would say it's a city program or whatever it was, but whenever those people were getting involved to quote unquote save the environment, I can tell you the environment was absolutely destroyed when they were done. done. There was nothing left. So I remember there was a, a section of a forest that they did, um, they, they decided to remove a plant called Arundo Donax, which is a kind of like a bamboo-like plant that sucks a lot of the resource from the water. Mm. And their strategy was basically scorch earth. They play, they spray Roundup, everything. There was oh, nothing, wow. nothing, nothing, nothing left alive, pretty much. Maybe 10% of the forest was alive. And then what happened is there was a forest fire that occurred several miles away, and that forest was now absolutely completely dry and dead. And a piece of ash, amber, came into that forest, and that forest was burned to the ground. So the result of saving that forest was absolutely dis- complete destruction of the forest. That's what happened. And 
it's so funny. It was so interesting because that forest was actually like unbelievable in terms of resource and food, wild food, and you know. And I understand it was non-native and invasive, but it was my favorite place. It's completely gone. There's nothing left. It's mm. you know, it's not even growing back at this point. You know. So I'm really. Oh, that is. Yeah, and this is why this is where my my perspective and epiphany came through. Going like this is you know what can i do and and, and i'm just by myself it is not you know i um uh, basically my my only way to fight back against this whole system that's happened you know i call that a system because it's really an economic system that is really badly managed to impact the environment right. uh, was to really educate people and i started to introduce this idea of invasive plant into my classes but also if you take a look at my book uh book number two three and four is pretty much all no, pretty much all non-native and invasive plant maybe like maybe the brewing book has some native plant but again i explain in the book that you should plant them you should plant so, native plants yeah plant native plant and then you mm-hmm. really use and, and and find find good use which really that's what my books are about. It's really find good use for those, you know, turning those non-native and invasive plants into gourmet food. Yeah. And that is actually nutritious and good for you. Getting back to the way that the ancestors utilized. Yeah. My next book is actually going to be probably on uh, edible seeds and grains. Mm. And again, this is fascinating. Uh, for example, in, Los, in the Los Angeles area, and even when I was in Colorado, one of the most invasive plants is called cheatgrass and cheatgrass another name for it is called foxtail it's the one people really don't like because it goes into your socks and it's painful it goes into the dog nose and they have to pay hundreds of dollars to get it removed Um, so it's the most probably like the most hated plant in los angeles and i'm fascinated when i see like the most hated plant i'm fascinated so (laughs) i'm doing research and i found this like the seeds is actually pretty i would not even call that a seed i would call that a grain you know a weird grain inside very dry but you know yeah foxtails look like a grain actually yeah but yeah. well, the, the foxtail is actually a, a generic name to many grasses that get stuck on you ah uh. you know so i call that's why i say cheat grass cheat grass is actually the correct name latin name would be a bromus tectorum Another name for it is called rip gut because the grain is so long and thin that if a cow were to eat a large quantity, it actually can uh, go through their stomach and pierce their stomach and intestine uh-huh. because the grain is so hard. But I'm doing research because once once I see like a big grain like that, I get obsessed. I'm going like, this is weird. And guess what? I found... Two mentions on the internet, on the whole internet, there was only two mentions and they were in French. I found two books about archaeology and they found those grains in caches, in pots in Europe, in England, one in England and one in France. And those grains were mixed with other edible grains and seeds. So they're actually food. And I'm mm-hmm. like, wow, that's crazy because it's so hard. So I went home and I started playing with it. And I found out that if you boil it, for like 40 to 15 minutes, it becomes like rice. It's nearly identical to rice. It's one of the most beautiful red grain that looks like wild rice in America. Wow. Uh, and it just blew my blew my mind away. And uh, what I do know is actually 
boiled a huge quantity for the whole year. I just collect it everywhere. So super easy to collect. And I do a large quantity in a big pot and you can mm -hmm. actually boil it for 15 minutes and then freeze it. And then later on, you can totally just open it and I serve that with my ferment. I serve that with my food. I used to work with some uh, Michelin star restaurant at the time in Ennaka, which is a very famous Japanese restaurant, has used those grain into their foods. So the most unwanted grain was actually used in a three Michelin star restaurant, <laughs> you know, as a food source, which is kind of like crazy to think of. Yeah. But there you go, you know. So seagrass is actually a hunter-gatherer food, food stuff from Europe, you know, that is completely, it was completely forgotten as a, as a potential food source. You know, I use it all the time. I have like several bags in my freezer that I use. Mm. You know, I, I'm having a class this week and then I'll be using it. And mix it with my ferment. It's super beautiful. So it can be artistic too. You know, it's, you make the food not only nutritious, but super pretty and all those plants. It's very easy to do with wild food because it's, I think wild food is super pretty. Mm. Yeah, I do too, especially if you have an artistic eye. Um, Wow, this is uh, this is a conversation I think that we could go on and on with. Um, but how would you like to wrap it up, since we are running out of time here? Yes, I know. But so my, you know, the the issue for me, from my perspective, and this is what I'm trying to tell people, is mm -hmm. you know, we we have to to change your more perspective and create a new narrative about the environment and, and, and the relationship between those native plant and non-native plant and invasive plant. And in you know, I don't always use the narrative of like non-native and invasive and, and you know looking at those plants as evil. I look at those plants as a resource. Hmm. Uh, and the reason I use those terms is because they are understood by people, including people who deal with nature and uh, environmentalists and blah blah blah. But really, you can take a look at those plants and say, well, they're not evil. They're just there. They have been introduced. Well, let's use them. Let's do something with them. You know, and I want people to realize that, you know, not using them is actually a source of food waste, if you think about it. Right. And most in a city like, uh, you know, I was in Denver, it was the same thing. surrounded by, you know, there's tons and tons and tons of non-native plants that could be used. Yeah. So I would say my message is for people, you know, start getting educated because, you know, food is becoming more expensive. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a fun, foraging and wild crafting can be a fantastic way to deal with the environment in a positive way. And if you learn about all those quote unquote non-native and invasive plants and learn how to make into gourmet food, it's going to be doing an interesting impact on your life. And it can do an impact also on the environment. Absolutely. In a positive way. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it, it keeps the chemicals off of it as well, which yes. I can't, I, I just don't see how that can be beneficial at all because it kills the soil and it gets into the water. And like you said, it just, uh, it just destroys. It's terrible. Yeah, absolutely so, terrible to yeah, use. Yeah. I mean, so I think there's other ways I like. I, I like the way you're looking at it. So thank you for that. And, um, and how would people you know, find your pottery, your books, where do they discover? So be best way to do it will be on social media, uh, Instagram, uh, under my name, P-A-S-C-A-L-B-A-U-D-A-R. And you can totally, 
you know, I, all the links are there to my website. My website is Urban Outdoor Skills. Uh, and then on Instagram too, I have an account for my ceramic. It's called Wild Crafted Ceramics. Yeah, and they're beautiful. What a great, yeah. yeah. You know, with the holidays coming, they, those could make really great gifts. So, okay. well, thank you for the time. Thank you for sharing, uh, yeah, kind of how you are, you know, how you are looking at nature and through your art. It's very beautiful. Oui, oui, oui. Merci. All right. Au revoir. Au revoir. Thanks for listening. Sharing the show or an episode that really resonated with you, with friends or on social media, is always appreciated. For podcast updates, please subscribe at ecogal.tv forward slash subscribe. Graphic elements and logos, courtesy of Linda Cornelius. Audio editing by Danielle Mikesell. Our theme music was created by Taylor Pye. You can find us on Instagram at ecogal TV. We appreciate your support and we value your time and energy. So we hope you found this useful and of value. Thank you for listening. See you back here soon. And until then, stay curious.